So last week, um, Pastor Nathan started the story series in earnest, and it's this 31-week series, and we heard about God's perfect creation, and there were four points that he, that he raised. First of all, that God created a perfect world in perfect, um, we were able to have a, a relationship with him, and um, the second point was that um, we broke it. Um, so we succumbed to temptation, man did, and Adam and Eve ate from the tree um, with the fruit of good and, uh, from the knowledge of good and evil. Third was that there was a consequence to that sin, uh, that third point, and it was a weighty conf- you know, um, consequence, and we're still experiencing the effects of that now. But the fourth um, point that was raised, and I'm going to touch on that now, is that the rest of the story is God's story of redemption. And so this is kind of chapter one of the story of redemption. But just um, so that you can follow on, we are actually in chapter two this week. (laughs) All right. So if you are joining us for the first time as a church, we're going through uh, this story. um, And it's not the Bible entirely, but there are... There's selected, um, really carefully selected passages out of the NIV translation, and they've been, they've been put in a um, chronological order to give us a, um, a really good account of God's, God's story and this big picture. And um, so last, last week we read about the fall, and this week we start to read about how God goes about um, redeeming us um, to himself and restoring us. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this morning. God, for um, the testimony of your greatness. Lord, that you are so interested, Lord, in restoring us to you. Father, and you go to all lengths and you go to extremes. You sent your son to die so that it could happen. Lord, I I pray for wisdom for us. That as we go through and we read through these chapters, Lord, in your story, Lord, that you continue to reveal... You reveal yourself to us, Father, and it, and it helps us to go deeper with you. Father, I pray for our enjoyment that this is um, a great experience and we love doing it. And God, I just pray once again that through it all that we'll know you more and we'll grow closer and more united together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So here we go, chapter 2. And for those of you that have had a chance to read chapter 2, you'll know that we are still in the book of Genesis. And, um, and this story, chapter 2, kind of followed three men and their journey. It started with Father Abraham and continued with his son uh, Isaac and then his son Jacob. And then it ended with the birth of Joseph, who was, um, who was Isaac's, uh, sorry, Jacob's son. And chapter 3 kind of continues you know, this, the, the account of Joseph, which is pretty cool. And the title of chapter 2 gives us a little bit of an insight to how God is going to restore this redemption plan. And it starts with these, with these words, that God builds a nation. So I don't know about you, but I love history. And I feel like, every, well, this is the fourth time I've, I've, I've spoken, but this is the second time I've spoken from the Old Testament, and I just... I don't know, when I, when, I, when I research on the Old Testament, I just get stuck into it. It's like this wormhole, but I feel like um, you know, God's revealing himself in, in all of that. But particularly as a, as a Christian guy who, um, who loves history, 
and who views the story as, a, as an accurate historical account of the work of God in this world. I love that time and time again, as archaeologists and historians reveal something or discover something new, really all it does is it just highlights something or just points to something that I've already read and I've read my whole life and it's really cool and it's, you know, it builds my faith. And so, um, so for the history boffins, I just, um, helpfully on the first page of chapter two, we're given a little bit of a timeline um, of the events which happen in the chapter and it looks a little something like this. So it starts, um, Abraham is called, is called by God out of, um, out of the region where he was and he grew up with his father at 75 years old and, and he moves to Canaan and, and it follows all of this timeline to, to when Isaac dies. This is the timeline for chapter 2. And, um, and as you can see, today in 2022, um, believe it or not, that's the year this year, we're around about as far after the birth of Christ now as these events were before um, the birth of Christ. And so, um, really interestingly, this is what the world would have looked like around about that time. And, um, and what we didn't... Oh, that's hard to see, isn't it? But I'll sort of talk through it a little bit. What we didn't read in the story was that following from Noah, which is where chapter 1 ended, and the flood, the events of the Tower of Babel, and that was in the heart of Babylon, and that was before um, Abraham. And if we use the Bible to fill in, those, to fill in the gaps um, throughout Genesis... We read that God dispersed the people um, from that location because they'd lost their way and, they'd, and he created confusion amongst those people. And so here we are, that little blue dot um, right in the center of that red circle, I'm not sure if you can see that, that is, um, that is where Babylon was. It says Ur 3, believe it or not. It means that's the third dynasty of Ur. And that's the location where um, Babylon was and previously Samaria. And at that time, the most advanced civilization. And, um, and as you can see, as um, the people were dispersed from that location, you can see the orange is, um, the text is hard to read, but basically the blue stands for an advanced um, civilization with, um, um, with uh, societal structures and what have you. And the orange is, um, is a little less advanced, but more so than certainly the orange and green were, um, are. And that or those orange and green parts are very just basically farmers and and um, and you know f- um, you know fairly archaic kind of kind of living. So um, as the people are dispersing from that location, they are also taking with them their rituals and their views. And so in ancient Babylon, they worshipped many gods, and so they worshipped like the. The, the god of Marduk, which was their primary god, and then the god of the underworld, Nagal, and the goddess of the sea, and what have you. And then so this history influenced you know, the Greek and, um, you know, and the Egyptian culture you know, with their gods. And so, Mark, you're probably thinking right now, what's the go with the history and the geography lesson? <laughs> and, uh, well, the history lesson, because as you read through the Bible, it almost makes you cringe when we read about the brutal and harsh history you know, of the time. And it was easy for me to relate, I suppose, or understand um, if I knew a little bit more about that time. So right at the start of chapter 2, God tells Abram to go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. 
And in Joshua, we actually find out where Abram is called out, called from. And so that's how we know he came from this location. In Joshua chapter 24, it says, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So God takes Abraham at the age of 75 out of this pagan society from the region of Ur to show the whole world a different way. This is his plan. With all the hostility between, within the nations at that time, he builds a new nation, one that starts with one faithful and willing man. So this is where we begin. And the first paragraph of chapter 2 reveals that God's plan starts with this new nation. So it's going to be a nation unlike anyone's ever seen before. It's going to be countercultural to anything of its time. Rather than be ruled by kings like the others around it, it's going to be a nation under one God. And not only that, it's going to disrupt the region. It's going to prosper. And this new nation is going to develop in a mighty way under God's authority. And the other nations are going to look to it in wonder and in fear. And so God's desire is revealed in the beginning of chapter 2 where he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And later on in Exodus chapter 19, I'm kind of stealing someone's thunder, I suppose, for a chapter to come, but we'll hear how God further elaborates on his, on his intentions for Israel, where he says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So if the role of the priest is to mediate and restore relationships between two parties, between man and God, and in Genesis chapter 12, we read before that Abraham has promised that all people of the earth will be blessed through him, then the plan is, is revealed. God is going to build a nation, a holy nation, which he will use to demonstrate to the world his desire for humankind And it's going to be different to the world through which all people on earth will be blessed. All right, I hope you're still with me. Here we go. The way he does it is incredibly unexpected. And like God does right throughout history, he takes a faithful servant, one who is prepared to follow God no matter the cost, and he uses them to change everything. So of the three men spoken in this chapter, I'm, I've been drawn to Abraham. This guy who's grown up in this pagan society, only to be radically changed, and his life was, was worth documenting post-75. And, um, you know, it was only last November that in our Hebrews Hero series that Pastor Nathan preached a sermon on Abraham, focusing on the, on the faith required in this time. But what Abraham did was even more unusual as we learn more about his heritage and his history. How many people do you know 
who at 75 radically changed this much. And I really hate to generalise, but most, most people I know at 75 are kind of you know, starting to settle down and they've worked hard and um, you know, maybe they're buying a caravan and they're tripping around the country and, man, they have served Christ, but now is the time you know, where they're taking a well-earned break. Well, at 75, Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, and they leave home. They turn their back on the many gods around him that had taught him to worship at the instruction of a God who says, no, there's only one, there's only one and it's me, and I want you to start a new nation. It's a really remarkable story, but I've been keen to paint the picture of ancient Middle East because Abraham was not the perfect man, and I want to highlight the change of old thinking that God was calling him out of, because in a way, we're also being led by God to build a nation also. Or in New Testament sort of terminology, we're called to build a kingdom. And not only that, we're called to do it differently, just like Abraham was, in a way that is completely countercultural, to live a sanctified life rather than one that the world is telling us should be self-serving. So knowing that we're called to, what we're called to is not too dissimilar to what Abraham was called to, let's look at some of the aspects of the story to see what we can learn. So the first thing I noticed was Abraham's age and history. It is a really curious choice, a 75-year-old man with no prior knowledge of God. And this part of the story highlights a, a really important and fundamental principle of the way that God works. And it's this, that what matters most is God's grace and not our own effort or ability. And I think we'll learn, we'll lose count of the number of times that we hear this same thing, you know, crop up over the course of this Old Testament, pardon me, over this next 31 weeks. In Abraham's case, there's no theological training. There weren't any theological resources at that time. Although it seems that Abraham had a bit of wealth and servants and tow, it certainly wasn't an army or anything. And he was going into a, a habited land, a habitated land. So if we're doubting your effectiveness or your ability to actually make a difference in his kingdom build, well, then that's perfect. Because when we, th- when we begin to think that we're anything more than a character in his story, God reminds us that he's the one in charge and it often hurts. And I've seen it too many times to count. If you're feeling prompted to serve in ministry, but you're struggling with your inadequacy, that's brilliant. Because you're exactly the kind of person that God can use. Remember that his grace is sufficient, and it's his favor that fills any gaps that we think we might have. The The second thing I noticed was that as God built his nation, he challenged Abraham's thinking on where his help should come from. Second point is the help, our help comes from the Lord. It was believed that each of the gods that Abraham once worshipped would provide in particular areas and they would require specific sacrifices to help. 
For example, the god Nana was the source of fertility crops, herds, and families at that time. But just as Abraham was called into God's promise, so are we. And we're also called to submit to him before all else and none other. For us, it's not turning away from other gods, perhaps. But it is turning away from those idols that we put before God. We're told that we should be caring. We're told we should be caring about them above anything else. But that's not what God has asked us to do. You know, maybe it's our identity, our work, our money, our social media presence. You know, the list is there. And if your life is consumed by these things before they're consumed by God, then there's one thing that history has has taught us. That if you're looking to build a personal empire on these other idols, then personal empires, they never last. They always fall. The next observation of the story was from Genesis 16. And um, and it's an uncomfortable read. It's where Sarah... um, I'm just going to read it. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. The Lord had kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave. Um, Sorry, pardon me. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave him to her husband to be his wife, and he slept with her and she conceived. One thing I discovered in my trip through ancient Near East history was that they placed an enormous importance in that time on protecting the family inheritance. And in fact, marriage contracts of that time actually determined that, they, that husbands could divorce their wives if their wives failed to bear them children. Or they were allowed to take on concubines or even marry again um, in order to do that. So as shocking as this was to my, you know, to my 21st century modern sensibilities, after understanding the historical culture, Sarah's suggestion doesn't seem too far out there for that time. And so, but remember that God had called them to be countercultural. But she and Abraham take matters into their own hands and, and they reveal a little bit of a lack of faith. And so this serves as a reminder that when God's people revert to the surrounding culture for their values and we take our eyes off what God values, there's a consequence. And the consequences, they might not be immediate. But Hagar's son, Ishmael, he went on to establish a great nation also. And he became the forefather to many prominent Arab tribes in that region. And Muslims believe that Muhammad descended from Ishmael's line. So this is a significant repercussion which has been the source of tension for thousands of years. But Genesis chapter 21 reveals a third point. Despite taking matters into their own hands, God still fulfilled his promise to Sarah and Abraham. Sarah and Abraham's faith was not unwavering, but this story reveals to us that the Lord can work through imperfect faith, fulfilling his promises through imperfect people. 
That's our third point. I wish I could have shortened it down. But the Lord can work through imperfect faith, fulfilling his promises through imperfect people. And this is important for me, and it gives me hope. Because although for some reason he's using me to equip and equipping me to bring the word to to his church, and although I can give countless examples of how he's demonstrated his faithfulness to me over just you know, the last few weeks, the last few months, whatever. And although because for what he's done for me, I've got every reason to live a blameless life, just like Sarah and Abraham, I keep stuffing up. My faith is still imperfect. But what can you do? I could wallow in self-pity and I can sit in my shame but then I've, I've let Satan claim a victory in my life that he has no right to claim. On the other hand, I can accept his forgiveness and push on and continue helping God build his kingdom as is his intention for my life. When I just continue on and, and read this bit from chapter 2, and it's a familiar story from Genesis chapter 22. It's a little bit of a long read from the Bible, but um, I'm not going to apologize for it. It's good. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the, word, took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had to- when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And that's from Genesis 22. Now I've got to admit, I think as a father I really, just as a human, I wrestle with this story. 
You know, maybe it's because I don't know if I can relate to the kind of faith that Abraham showed here. I don't know if I could ever do that. Or if I, if I couldn't imagine my loving father, particularly as was um, particularly the example of Christ as he lived and I read about in the gospel, you know, if he could ever ask someone to do that. But there's an important link Right at the start of God's story of redemption, which he reveals 2,000 years before the ultimate sacrifice that Christ made for us, and the battle was won. The story is shocking to... uh, Pardon me. The story is shocking to me because I relate to the pain as a father. And I think God highlights that experience to Abraham so that he can highlight the burden that he has taken off his people that he loves and that he placed on himself when he sent his own son to die. For three days, Abraham journeyed full of sorrow for his son. And for three days, our Savior was buried in the tomb after his sacrifice. On the third day, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac's back. Isaac would later be laid on the wood as the sacrifice, just as Jesus had carried the cross before being nailed to that wood. And that might be a coincidence, if not for the fact that Abraham took his son, that the Lord would, told his son that the Lord would provide a lamb, and yet he provided a ram. And for 2,000 years, this prophetic word sits. You know, why did God tell Abraham to travel to that particular place, this three-day journey? That site at Mount Moriah was named The Lord Will Provide by Abraham. And 2,000 years at that very same place, it was called Golgotha, and we call it Calvary. And there at that place, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, took our place. What an incredible reminder. Man, I learned that through the, through the video for the small groups, by the way, for this week. It blew my mind. But what an incredible reminder of the authorship and the control that the Lord has over this story. As we travel through the the chapters, God's people do some outrageous things and they go wayward. But it's right here at the start of the story where God builds his nation right at its inception that we're reminded that throughout it all, God never loses control of the outcome. In Daniel chapter 4, he says, How great are his signs And how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. We can be confident that the kingdom that we are building with God, because he was in control then, and he will be in control right to the end. So after all this, I want to continue to challenge myself and I I want to try and challenge you too. I might not be 75 years, but just as he called Abraham, he's calling us too. I love that word that Rachel shared right at the start. You know, where she was saying, live a life according to the life that you're called to. Something along those lines. Yeah, God's calling us to live this life and he's called us to it. We're called to live lives that are countercultural and a beacon and a difference to the world. And so as others would look at our lives and wonder, 
and so that we would also be a blessing to the people. In some ways, this requires just as much of a drastic and obvious a cultural shift as it was for Abraham. And so I've just got two. Two things that I thought of that are countercultural to the way that we can be living our lives. Firstly, a shift from sorrow to joy. You know, as Christians, particularly in this time when there's fear and anxiety, it's all rife, we can be a bright light in a dark time. So very simply, smile and laugh often. Examine your thoughts and instead of focusing on the things that you don't have, try to recall and be thankful for the things you do have. Changing the way you think about and view things or situations can have a really positive impact on your life and the ones that that are around you. Choose to be thankful for the things that bring you joy and happiness. For example, your relationship with God, a loving and supporting family, wonderful friends, great church, purpose, hopes, and a father who's got it all in his hands. And secondly, from a constant pessimism to a persistent hope. There are no promises that the world won't continue to get darker. But the word of God has given us hope for renewal and awakening. And the work of God throughout the story over thousands of years only gives us reason to have that perseverance and expectation. Yeah, it's these shifts that allow us to be a beacon of light in this world, an example of holy living, which he will use to demonstrate to the world his desire for humankind to be in the world, not of it, and be a positive difference. Let's pray together. God, you are a mighty king. God, your works and your planning and <laughs> is a marvel to witness, to read about and experience. And God, just as you are at work then, so are you at work now. Lord, when you ascended, you promised that you would come back and we hold to that promise and we look to it as our hope. And Lord, we're thankful for it. Father, I just um, I pray for your church. I pray that as time goes on, that we can continue to be or even start being or even just do it better, God, the church that you intended. Lord, to be a light in this world. Lord, to reflect others towards you and direct them through our witness. God, through our lives and the demonstration you know, in the way that we live because there's a Holy Spirit, Lord, that you've given us, God, and there's a Christ that lives in us. God, who longs to see more and more turn to him. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for, um, for the future, <laughs> a future with you. Lord, we pray that we can be a part of that, continue to build your kingdom in awesome ways. Yeah. I pray for this time, Lord, in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.